I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One effect that having to go through a lot of rejection has had on me is that I will tend to come up now with a project that, that I feel confident I can sell. Hello and welcome back to the second season of Write Off, the podcast about writing rejection and how people get through it. I'm your host, Francesca Steele, a writer and journalist based in London. If you don't already know Sandra Newman, you are going to be hearing a lot about her in the next year or so. Her new book, The Men, about a world in which everyone with a Y chromosome vanishes, is out this June. And she's also currently writing a much anticipated feminist retelling of George Orwell's 1984. You may already have read The Heavens, her extraordinary book published a few years ago about a time-travelling Shakespeare, or The Country of Ice Cream Star, which was long-listed for the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2014. A little note, we talk a lot about Sandra's difficult upbringing at the beginning of this podcast. That's not because I like to be really intrusive when it comes to trauma. Sandra has actually written an autobiography about that time, Changeling. And it's not even just because I think Sandra's brave, although I do, she is. It's more, though, because Sandra's journey to publication, like her writing style, in fact, is full of surprises, adventures and quite weird tangents. And I think really understanding where she came from is a useful insight into how where we come from can inform the type of writing we do. Sandra's experienced plenty of failure, of course, this is write-off, notably when her publisher declined to publish the second book in her two-book deal. Ouch. We also discuss unlikable books, and she tells me all about the time she pulled off a remarkable publicity stunt for her first ever play when she was a creative writing student, only for it to get savaged in the press. Also, I just have to say, if you don't already follow Sandra on Twitter, please start. She really is one of the funniest, most interesting people I follow. Before we get going, I just want to say something about Write Off's sponsor this season. Dealing with rejection is just one part of a writer's life. 
Jericho Writers, are with you for every word. They are all about embracing the entire journey, rejections and all, and are committed to helping you hit your writing goals, whatever stage you're at. Their inspiring courses, editorial services and events have launched writing careers and members benefit from heaps of additional content such as video courses, masterclasses and weekly live online events, many of which I've enjoyed myself. By becoming a Jericho Writers member, you can get insight into the world of agents and publishers, power through your plot problems, level up your prose style and polish your submission before it lands in an agent's inbox. Plus, you'll be learning alongside a worldwide community of writers who will keep you motivated and on track even when a rejection rolls in. Listeners of the podcast can get an exclusive 15% discount on membership by going to jerichowriters.com forward slash join dash us and entering the code write dash off. I will put that in the show notes. So let's listen to Sandra. When I was a small child, I couldn't sleep and I would lie in bed and tell myself stories. It started with me being a horse who escaped from an enclosure and became a wild Mustang. That was one of the the favorite stories. Then there were other stories about a fox who escaped from a zoo or or whatever. And then I began to write them. And I always thought of myself as a writer from that time on, from the time I was a small child. So in the meantime, like one of the reasons that all of these stories feature animals who run away from home, as you know, the listener will probably no doubt have already guessed, is that my home was not particularly happy. My mother had serious mental health problems and she killed herself when I was 13, at which point she had already been hospitalized with previous suicide attempts six times. So that's that's really like the the basic traumatic childhood story that I have. And after that, you know, I struggled. I was a very confused and kind of chaotic adolescent. I dropped out of school and in America, you can get a GED. So it's not the end of the world, but it's usually the end of your education when you do that. Because I'm from a Jewish family where it's never the end of your education until you get a college degree. They just pester you for the rest of your life. So <laughs> so I did end up going to school. And for reasons that that are stupid, actually, I went to London to do this. <laughs> which is my, my father was an engineer and he went on this work thing to London. And he thought because at that time I was just lying around the house with no apparent future, he thought it might help me if he brought me on this business trip with him. And you fell in love with an ice cream seller. Is that right? Yes. I fell in love with an ice cream man who I did. I did have one like crazy night of sex, not love, but sex with him and and I decided that this should become a permanent thing, which I don't think I was even that serious about. I really just wanted to leave home that badly. And I did not tell my father about the ice cream man, but I did tell him that I was determined to move to London. And I think by that time, any plan which got me out of his house was good. So he gave me like a really unrealistically small amount of money and sent me to London. And that was the, the story of my time in London from there was always of having an unrealistically small amount of money and being unable to pull myself together to earn a realistically large amount of money. <laughs> what was your BA in? That was at a polytechnic in London, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that was, that was it was Russian and English joint degree. It's amazing that you studied Russian. I mean, maybe we'll get to more of this in a wee bit. I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, but the parents that you've just described were your adoptive parents, weren't they? And then later yeah. on in this tale, you, you went on to meet your birth parents and your mother was, your birth mother was working 
in Russian and spoke Russian and there were all these sorts of funny connections. I, I wonder what drew you to Russian in your own mind at that time, because, you know, you're saying you're sitting around in your house in America, not doing very much, you didn't have your GED and so on. And then you go off to London to learn Russian of all things. It seems like an unusual choice. Yeah, it seemed completely random. I, at the Polytechnic that where I was studying, they only had a languages department. They didn't have like a whatever, a liberal arts department. So if you studied English, you had to study it with a language. And I didn't speak any languages particularly well. Like I had only studied Spanish to a very little degree. It wasn't really to A level. So the only languages that you could start ab initio were Russian, Chinese, and Arabic. And what's bizarre, though, is that I had studied a little bit of Russian just on my own because one of my friends one day when we were sitting around bored turned to me and another friend and said out of nowhere, let's learn Russian. And we like were being cool. So we were like, OK, OK, we'll learn Russian. And because I'm an incredibly literal minded person, I actually went and started to learn Russian and got a Russian book. <laughs> and your friend didn't. Yeah, they did not really. Like, <laughs> I think the one who initially suggested it actually like, spent a day considering doing this, but did not. And that didn't persist very long as it tends not to when you try to learn languages alone. But it, I thought, well, I already know the alphabet, so I'll do Russian. You know, whatever you make of that, like, what is that? I, it's probably just a pure coincidence. Did you study literature alongside? Yeah. I think some of your work has tinges of Russian influence. I don't know whether you agree, but it's quite dark and precise in the way that some of the Russian greats are. I'm not sure. I've never really thought of it that way. Yeah, certainly, certainly like my thinking has been affected by Russian. I'm not sure if my... I'm not sure if my writing has been affected by Russian. That's interesting. In what way has your thinking been affected? It's really, it's really politically my thinking has been affected a lot by knowing far too much about the history of Russia. It, it prepares you for the idea that any good state of affairs is temporary and fragile and no one knows how to preserve it. There was quite a lot that happened between you finishing your BA and publishing your first book. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because it, again, it was quite traumatic, wasn't it? And I know you wrote about it in your memoir. I think when, when I look back on it, mostly what happened was me being very poor and not being able to figure out how to how to keep a job. I mean, I know there was was my mother's death. My adoptive father also died during that period. But then at the same time, I met my birth parents who were very important in my life for a long time. Oh, my mother's still in my life. And I suppose that I got married two times. My first husband, just actually shortly after my first book was published, he also committed suicide, like my mother. He had serious mental health problems. So that, and then my second husband, like when, you, when you're a messed up person, you tend to gravitate to other messed up people. And I think this is like, in my life, I think there were two kind of it's almost like I want to call it a negative feedback spiral, but it's more of a positive feedback thing where if you're messed up, you get involved with other messed up people and you're trying to comfort each other and give each other support. But because you're messed up, you don't really know how to do that. You don't know how to be a person. So actually, like each person that you add to your social circle is a new agent of chaos, potentially. And so like there's there's a lot of love and, and strength in those relationships, but there's also a lot of potential for things just like becoming compounded or perpetuated in terms of not being able to do things like hold down a job effectively. Um, so really, like for a very long time, 
I was one of those people where anybody who wasn't messed up would look at me and think, you know, I just don't want to get involved with her because it's one thing after another. It's always the drama. Why can't she just do normal things and take care of herself and be a person? And it's really bizarre when you actually stop doing that and you can just be a person because in some ways I have a lot of nostalgia for what I was like when I was younger. It was a lot more dramatic. It was a lot more exciting. Um, and things happened all the time. It was remarkable. I would always have something to tell people. Now I meet people and I'm like, what have I been doing? Like nothing's happened this year. <laughs> it's really like, but I've been pretty much the same. You know, I sit at home and write and still yeah. married. I'm still like everything is just still as it was. And it's pretty good. And I know at some point in those years, in your 20s, you did a course, at an MA at U- UEA in creative writing. How was your writing fitting in at this time with your work and your marriages and this chaotic lifestyle that you describe? I think you were also working as an escort. Is that right? Yeah, very briefly, actually. Like I, I also could not, I was not together enough to do that successfully either, actually. like That's something for which you need a certain amount of mental toughness to be to be successful. And I would, did not have the requisite mental toughness, so I did not last. But anyway, that the only job I ever really held for any length of time, and I was at it for years, was a kind of a, a casual typing job that a lot of artistic types had in London at the time, where you transcribed radio and television programs. So you're okay. like wearing a headset and transcribing these programs. So you were doing that and fitting in, were you just sort of writing in your own time, trying to get better and writing short stories? What were you doing? How was that evolving? I always was trying to write books. I've still have not really successfully written a short story that anybody really likes. So I was always trying to write books. And sometimes I would do it at work too. I would sit at work and, and write because they were long, empty patches when nobody had ordered anything, but they still needed somebody to man the desks in case an order came in. And I would sit there and write. And in fact, I, I wrote an entire trilogy of plays which got erased in the in the computer system of my oh, workplace. No. Or worse. What, were they good? Were they good plays? Are you able to say with hindsight whether they were good or bad? Is this a loss to the world? <laughs> no, I don't think they were that good. No, I don't think it's a huge loss to the world. But who, we've, we will never really know whether it must have felt horrendous at the time, though. Absolutely awful. It was. It was very shocking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in some ways, like at that time, if we're talking about rejection, that was the peak of. I, I had really decided that. I was going to try to be a writer and be serious about being a writer because I could not figure out any other way. I would try to think of other things to do for a living. And because I didn't really want to do them, I just wanted to be a writer. I could never really stick to them. I couldn't stick anything. So I had finally decided, well, you know, I know it's impractical and it's unlikely that anyone will be able to support themselves as a writer, but I cannot see any other way that I will ever make a living either. So I might as well just do this and become and of course, you know, that initially generally does not look that pretty, especially when you are a person, as I was, who had no contacts within publishing and no real understanding of how the publishing world worked. I mean, not no understanding, because I, I had in the past known a couple of people who were either in publishing or were writers of some kind, but really almost no understanding. When I go to hell, they, one of the things that will happen to me is that they show me the letters that I wrote to agents and publishers in this period. <laughs> and I had no idea how to write a query letter. I was oh, trying to... God, it it, it's just got to be really humiliating. How many manuscripts do you think you sent off and to how many people? 
Not that many. Like really, it should be a hundred, but it's probably more like forty or fifty altogether. That, forty or fifty the, manuscripts, or forty or fifty people. Oh, forty or fifty as separate submissions. And then there were various things okay. that I set out. You know, the worst period was towards the very end when I was really like when I was really doing it. Like I was doing like I was like whatever is necessary, whatever I have to do, I will do it. And I actually I borrowed some money from a family member and put on a play that I had written. And at this was at the same time, like this could have like finished me forever. But at the same time, I had gotten into UEA, which was like the big life changing piece of good fortune that helped me become a writer. But the play, which I put on with my own money and like I didn't, I also did not know how to put on a play and had no connections in the world of, of the theater. So it was really, really, you know, lots of embarrassing mistakes. And I did it we was, but, you know, like doing brave things when you have no courage, is a, it's a really unique experience, I think. So it was awful. Like I was a painfully shy person, too, at that time. So I did all of that. And then the play got unbelievably bad reviews, which I've got to say was also a huge achievement because for it to get any reviews at all was remarkable. Yeah, I was going to say that. Put on in one of those, you know, theaters that's over a pub and there was absolutely no reason for anybody to go to it. But I managed to get people from time out and is it the stage. I don't know. There's a. Yes. Yeah. Sure. How did you do that? Did you write to them? I wrote to them and I did this really bizarre kind of publicity kit, which had little gift items in it, which were themed. I, ca I can't really even describe it. It would be just too long a story to to explain how the gift items worked. Which <laughs> 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 was actually, it was actually kind of funny and clever and it got them to come to the play. But that, that all that got me was that I was savaged in the press. <laughs> but something I wonder is, if you write a book and you send off a manuscript and it is rejected, then it sort of dissipates. And I mean, it does exist, but it also doesn't because it's not being presented to the world. If you've done a play, even if it gets bad reviews, if you've staged it at all, then it exists now in the world. And that must have felt good, right? To have sort of created something that was then existing. Well, no, because if the thing that's existing is something that no one likes, it can begin to feel like, well, we, you know, we've tried this. And you know, the rocket blew up on the launch pad. <laughs> Fair like, enough. You know, I'm not a good engineer. You know, you could think that. Like, very fortunately, I was at UEA at that time, and and everybody was responding really well to my work at UEA. So I got this other. You know, it felt it felt much better because of that. It felt much more like a normal thing, and like nobody at UEA saw it either, which is also probably a good thing. But they were very supportive about that that experience, and you know, told me that it was normal and not what I thought it meant. When you went to UEA and people were responding well to your work, was that the first time that you sort of realized you were potentially good? Or did you already feel that when you were writing? Did you know that you had some talent? I really had no idea. I mean, when you're writing, when nobody's reading what you write, you can really make yourself crazy by going back and forth. You know, notoriously authors will write something and when they're writing it, they think it's genius. And then the next day they read it and they think it's trash. And then the next day they read it and think it's genius. And I was just going through that with no input from the outside world for years. <laughs> the only input would come when I sent it to an agent and got a, a like form letter saying that they weren't interested. You can really make yourself pretty crazy in that situation. 
And so on UEA, you started writing the novel that became your first book, right? The only good thing anyone has ever done. I had already started it by that time. So I had some amount of it. I don't know, the first 50 pages or something when I arrived at UEA. And that was part of my submission was that novel. I know you said in the past that you're not a confessional person per se, but it has autobiographical elements. It's about a kind of messy adoptive family. And in fact, your main character calls the unhappy childhood museum at one point. Do you feel now or did you feel then that it's sort of a classic autobiographical first novel that people talk of where you've got to get certain feelings and themes out of your system or not really? And in fact, it wasn't your first go. So maybe that's completely not the case. But it is interesting that your first published one does have these autobiographical elements, I think. You know, I didn't, I don't, I still don't think it's really an autobiographical novel, except in that I did feel that I had to get in every location that I had ever lived in, which I think is another common thing that people do with their first novel. So, and and I also had to work in the fact that I'd been a professional blackjack player for a little while. Like I had to work that into the book. So it has these like odd elements that are kind of melded together. That location thing is terrifying me. I'm just thinking about all the things I've written and how true that is. <laughs> and uh, it's like reading your book, which we'll get onto, but how not to write a novel where you see this stuff or hear about this stuff and you think, oh God, I am a big writing cliche. <laughs> anyway, that book was published, I think in your mid that, how old were you when it was published? In your mid-30s, is that right? I was, about, I was about 35, yeah. And it was nominated for the Guardian First Book Award, which is nice. Yeah. And did you did you suddenly feel like a big success? Uh, well, it's as happens with a lot of first novels, you're going through this odd thing where people, again, I was lucky that people responded to it at all. Like, that's the worst thing when nobody responds to your book at all, which did happen with my second published book that nobody responded to it at all. So I've been through that one too. But the, with the first one, I got a lot of good reviews, you know, and very few bad reviews. But at the same time, there's this kind of dark feeling around it where you begin to gradually realize that nobody will tell you this, but the book isn't selling. And what happens then, which I didn't fully realize because I wasn't that connected in the publishing world, even by then, um, I didn't really know that much about it. But I by then I had begun to realize that it can sometimes happen. And really, it often happens that you've sold the first book, it gets good reviews, and it just doesn't sell that well. And it becomes very hard to sell the second book. Now, I thought I was safe because I had a two book deal, which should have meant that the publisher would nevertheless publish my second book. But they actually declined to publish the second book that I presented. So after you'd written it, they declined it. Yeah. And was this, was this an idea or a plot that you had agreed with them? No, we didn't really do that, which probably would have been a good idea now that I can to think of it. <laughs> but I think that partly my editor was very much on my side. My editor wanted to accept the book that I turned in, but the sales and marketing people were absolutely not on board. How demoralizing. What, what was it about and how long had you spent writing it and why, why didn't they want it? It was a really strange book. So it was about two different relationships between people where there's a large age disparity and with the death of one of the people. And so the book is kind of, it's kind of set up so that the two relationships repeat each other in these sort of odd coincidental ways that feel a little spooky and impossible and the death feels inevitable. And we can't tell what is exactly completely real because the narrator in both cases is gradually losing their mind 
because they have, there's like this hereditary illness that everyone from this particular Romanian town has. And so there's all these elements. And basically what I was told was that it was too dark and negative, too hard to understand. And the characters were not sympathetic enough. Wow. I mean, I think that is the type of feedback for unpublished stuff that comes back quite a lot. That's come up a couple of times, that sort of thing. Did How did you feel when you were told that? Did you feel... I mean, presumably disappointed, but did you feel like they'd got it wrong or could you see their point at all? In retrospect, it's hilarious, although it was not hilarious at all at the time, was that the few people in my life who I showed it to had such an extraordinarily bad reaction to the book. (laughs) (laughs) My boyfriend almost threatened to leave me. My boyfriend was like, you need to see a therapist. (laughs) Wow. <laughs> just think that this is what's going through your head. Now I was sort of like, it's fiction. It's fiction. I mean, he was my boyfriend and there was an age disparity. So maybe he. My mother told me that if she had not been my mother, she would never have finished it. It's my, my biological mother, who's generally usually really nice to me. One of my friends, like our relationship never recovered from from the experience of her reading that book. It was it was really strange. It was it was again, it was almost spooky. It was like in the book, it was spooky. It felt like the book had spooky powers. But then like, you know, like five or something years later, I started showing the book to people again because I took it out and I thought, hey, this book isn't bad. This book is actually quite interesting. And ever since then, everybody has read it and been like, oh yeah, this book is kind of good. The same people or completely different people, but So I don't really understand what was going on there if it was just bad luck. So has your current agent or editors that you work with now seen it? Would they, would you revive it? I think that the feeling is that since I continue writing books, there is no reason to unearth that book. But at some point I may, I mean, it's still not a commercial book, but I wonder if, like, I think there was some feeling that the book made me look bad in that it's not a very likable book. It's kind of an abrasive book. Some abrasive books are unforgettable for that very reason. I don't know if you've ever read Elena Ferrante's Days of Abandonment, which I think yeah. is the angriest. Have you read it? I think it's the angriest book I've ever read. It's extremely angry. And for listeners who haven't read it, it's about a woman in Italy whose husband cheats on her and leaves her. And then it's sort of about her getting over. But it's not very graceful. It's very... It was opposites and she sort of is quite neglectful of her children and she's quite um, badly behaved generally. And I just loved it. I thought it was so brave and, and I loved that it was unlikable and that she's unlikable in it because really a character in her position should be effortlessly likable because something bad has happened to her. So I think sometimes those books really, really have a place in the market and some people really want them. Yeah, well, I haven't given up on that book entirely yet, although it becomes harder and harder to to think about fixing its problems as time passes. At the time, did it feel devastating to have it turned down? Oh, yeah. And I didn't know what I was going to do. Like, I I had actually been living on so little money that the amount that I earned from writing a first, like a debut literary novel, that money seemed like I was now in the middle class, which (laughs) is still still kind of funny. But comparatively, I was. Comparatively, I was. I actually could pay rent most of the time. So when that was rejected, it not only affected me psychologically, it affected me financially in such a way that my life was again back where I started. And I was again calling people up and asking them to loan me 50 pounds so that I could get through the next couple of weeks. Did you have to pay back some of the advance? Because I guess it's their choice that they didn't 
take the book, right? Or how did that work? No, I just wrote another book and gave it to them. I see. They gave me more time to write another book. But that's still time that you're not being paid any further. Yeah. No, interesting. But that's good that they, that must have built you back up a wee bit. If you were feeling down, having had the book rejected and you said it affected your self-esteem and so on, presumably the fact that they didn't say, well, we don't want you at all. Just, you know, the fact that they said, actually, just write us a different book, built you back up a wee bit after that. Yeah, it did. Although there's some, the, the trouble with publishing is that publishing people have no incentive to tell you the truth when the truth is going to hurt your feelings. So it was entirely possible that wasn't me being paranoid. It was entirely possible that they were just saying that in order to not rock the boat. <laughs> if you see what I mean, like they could easily have sent me away to write another book. And then knowing all the time that it was extremely unlikely that they would want to publish that book. Did you have an agent at this time? And what was he or she telling you? I had the agent that I still have, who's a wonderful agent. There are situations where an agent just can do nothing. Like sadly, many situations where an agent just can do nothing. So I was with the, the fabulous Victoria Hobbs, who basically, I mean, one of, the, one of the things about this was that I had actually thought that the second novel might be commercial, but I understood why it wasn't commercial after the fact. So I went back and tried to write another novel that would be commercial and again wrote a novel that was like tragically not commercial, <laughs> but at least it was less not commercial than the first one. And, and Chattering Windows, my publishers, nobly accepted the second second novel. Hello, Writerish Podcast listener. I'm Daniel Ford, co-host of the Writer's Bone Podcast and founder of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. At least one person that I know of has called me the Norman Lear of podcasting, but I'm here to talk about our flagship, Writer's Bone. We're a literary podcast that believes in the power of the written word. My co-host, Stephanie Ford, and our Friday morning coffee host, Caitlin Malqui, believe that storytelling can excite us, educate us, and at its best, unite us. Our mission is to promote authors of all backgrounds, races, creeds, and experiences. Since 2014, we've had the privilege of talking to bestsellers, debut authors, screenwriters, actors and actresses, and so many others that embrace creative endeavors. We hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, because we have no intention of stopping anytime soon. And our simplest, perhaps our best advice, keep writing, everyone. Well, I want to talk about your most recent project, which is The Heavens, which was published in 2019 and did extremely well. For listeners who haven't read it, it's this very strange and intoxicating, wonderful book about this couple, Kate and Ben, who are sort of being pulled apart by Kate's belief that she travels back in time during her dreams. And she sort of becomes this inspiration to Shakespeare and Elizabethan England. And then this whole sort of butterfly effect thing happens where she comes back and realizes she's sort of ruining modern day utopian America bit by bit, dream by dream. And I read that this all stemmed from a short story you had abandoned five years before writing The Heavens. And I thought that was so interesting. What was the original short story? Why did you abandon it? And what evolved in that time that made you want to kind of revive it as a novel? Yeah, the short story, really the only things that it has in common with the book are the two characters, Ben and Kate, not named that in the short story, who are having a relationship that's sort of like the relationship that Ben and Kate have, where they meet at a party that's sort of like that party. There is the character of the girl who always takes off her clothes at parties. So she's a character. In the short story, she's 
it's a different thing. She's a character who turns into a very successful photojournalist and she's married to this rich guy. But the book, the sorry, the short story turns into something which is about, I guess it's about first world problems. It's about people having bad relationships who are Westerners while also doing work in the Democratic Republic of Congo and their like relationship problems and psychological problems against the backdrop of that and how they how they not only are incapable of detaching from their personal problems, but they turn the war into something that, that gives them personal significance. So it's, a, it's about that sort of thing. And that obviously shares a lot with the book where there's this kind of self-aggrandizing quality to doing anything good. Where, yes. where, until you abandoned that, you don't really think of yourself as a short story writer. Was that why you abandoned that? It sounds like you have so many ideas that in a way they, they would get crammed in a, in a short story. Is that, is that why? You know, I don't know what it, I think there's probably some element of that. I just don't thrive in the short story. I don't normally read short stories either. And I often feel with short stories that I didn't get enough at the end of the short story. So I think that's part of it too. There aren't that many short story writers I love. Five years later, you began writing this as the heavens. Could you, could you just not forget those characters and that idea? I'm sorry. No, not really. I think that one effect that having to go through a lot of rejection has had on me is that I will tend to come up now with a project that that I feel confident I can sell. And then the artistic task becomes to shove everything into that project that I want to write. It's like an enabling constraint. It's as if you're working in the sonnet form and you have to write a sonnet that has these qualities. So that's the, you know, whatever commercial idea I think that I have. And then I turn it into something that is inevitably considerably less commercial than the than the idea sounded in the first place. Like the idea for the heavens was like a time travel novel where the heroine goes back in time and has a relationship with Shakespeare. So that's a super commercial idea. And I turned it into the heavens, which is a considerably less commercial, much more sort of thinky, odd book. Yeah. Um, and the novel before that, The Country of Ice Cream Star, was also a super commercial idea about a future world in which everyone dies when they're 18 years old and the heroine has to go and find the cure to the disease that kills everyone when they're still children. So it's like a world, a society of children and teenagers and this quest for the cure. And again, I you know, decided to turn it into something radically less commercial by writing it in a futuristic patois. And, yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you about that, actually, because I think you started writing it in standard American English to begin with, right? And then, and then yeah. kind of scrapped that and started this vernacular, um, which you invented. How much had you written when you scrapped it? And, and how did you kind of know? I find the whole thing of not just editing, but like full scrapping of things, which obviously writers do all the time, but how to know when to do that and when to, I mean, how much had you written of ice cream when you scrapped it and started in the patois instead? I really hadn't written very much. I couldn't get it started without the patois. So there have been lots of things that I did scrap over the years. Um, like the book I started writing after Ice Cream Store was a novel about ballet dancers after a nuclear war. So it's like a ballet troupe that gets <laughs> stranded in the middle of nowhere on tour after a nuclear war and they whatever. There's still 60 pages of it. And the 60 pages are okay, but they're just not that great. And I, no matter what I did to it, it wouldn't become any better. It was just fine, but it wasn't that great. 
How does it feel when you decide finally to bend something? Does it feel good, like a relief, or does it feel depressing, like you've wasted a lot of time? For me, it always feels good. I think I'm really, I'm, I'm a bit the princess and the pea about everything. So unless things are fantastic and I love them, I'm always incredibly disgruntled. So, so yeah, so I was like, if I, if I don't have to do a task that I'm not enjoying, I'm always relieved. But it is really hard to tell because there have been entire books that I've written where I was never that happy the entire time I wrote the book. But I would be forced to admit, like the the last book that's still not out, The Men, that book, I never really enjoyed writing it. It was a difficult period, obviously, with COVID and the Trump administration and everything. But I was just never entirely happy writing it. But when I looked at it, I would be forced to admit that it was actually great. That's kind of interesting. So when you're writing, how much do you tend to enjoy things? I mean, I think writers vary hugely in this. I've spoken to some people who just love coming to the desk and entering these imaginative worlds and being in control of them and so on. And there are some people who find it really hard and they kind of spend a lot of time trying to get into the zone and are kind of only happy when it's done. Where are you on that scale? I can be either. When I was writing Ice Cream Star, that was the happiest period of my life. And for about four years, all I wanted to do was write that book. I was happy every day because if I could write that day, I was happy. And I loved everything about it. And I was, I intended to write two more books in that world, in that voice, but, but commercially this turned out to not be a very welcome concept. And it always reminds me of my, my second husband used to get tattoos. And once he arrived at his tattooist's place and the tattooist was there with like a really beautiful young girl who was getting a tattoo on her groin. So she was like wearing these skimpy underpants and. He was like tattooing something like right on her upper thigh, just just there. After she left, my husband said to the tattooist as he was like getting his equipment set up, you have the best job in the world, man. The tattooist said to him, no, when she was in here, I had the best job in the world. So I always have mixed feelings about that, but it comes back to me. You know, <laughs> that's so funny. And I also think it's hilarious that you're comparing your writing of quite like literary fiction to the tattooing of a groin and the pleasure that brings to a very particular job on a very particular day. But I take the point that, you know, yeah. that the most the pleasurable thing can be different levels of pleasure depending on what exactly you're doing with it at the time. So one of the themes of the heavens is, as I sort of mentioned already, that how you try to achieve greatness can be kind of a pernicious thing. And, you know, what cost does someone's greatness come? Do you believe that people, and I suppose I'm talking specifically about creatives here, are or can be inherently great? Or do you think it's more of the sort of 10,000 hour Malcolm Gladwell thing of, no, it's just hard work. And the more you write, the more you learn. I really, I'm sort of in between. I, I really think that a lot of people have the talent to be great writers, like the inherent talent. You know, not everybody does clearly, like most people don't have the talent to be great writers, but a lot of people who really love writing and work at writing have the talent to be great writers. And they just don't, they don't put in the work or they don't have the circumstances that will allow them to become great writers. I think a lot of writers who become very good writers could have been great writers. But I mean, for one thing, like as we've been discussing, like what's commercial, what's not commercial, the market isn't always going to welcome 
great work. Sometimes, sometimes the market is just steering you in a direction which, you know, it, it's not, it's not necessarily bad, but it's not going to allow you to do the thing that you could have done that might have been great. Mm-hmm. Whereas for somebody else, the thing that they're designed to do that could be great happens to also be the thing that is welcomed by the market this year. Mm-hmm. So, so I think there are a lot of contingencies and incidental things that can make it possible for you to write great work and the next person not to write great work or for you not to be able to write great work and the next person to be able to. Um, and for most people, it's just like, I think rejection is huge for most people and stopping them from writing the best work that they can write. I found it almost impossible to finish a novel until I got a novel published, at which point I was able to finish every novel. If it was any good, I could write it to the end within two years and get it done to a professional standard because I knew that somebody was going to be taking it seriously. It was huge for me that my friends and family took me seriously as a writer and did not treat me as if I were delusional or self-indulgent or just avoiding life and avoiding the realities of life. And that's a thing that getting a book published, especially commercially published, where they pay you enough money to at least pay your rent for six months, maybe not for a year, but for six months, you're, you know, you have, to, and you also have that six months in which you could, like, if you have the kind of job where you can do that, you could just work on your writing. Those things make a huge difference in how good you're able to be. And people don't want to talk about that because there's often nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to change those circumstances. There's nothing you can do to make your friends take you seriously. So it's just one of the difficulties we contend with. And your debut novel, how long had that taken you? And when you were writing that one, did your friends think you were a bit delusional? Yes. Everyone thought I was delusional until I got accepted at UEA, basically. Generally, people think that if you want to be a writer, you're kidding yourself and you're getting above yourself. Unless you come from a family of writers. A lot of writers come from families of writers and families or families of publishing people, media people. The reason for that, I think, is largely that they are treated from the beginning as if it's a realistic goal and it makes it much easier for them to get somewhere. And then they have the connections when they actually have a product to sell that makes it easier to sell it. Wait, now I can't remember the question. How long did it take you to write The Only Good Thing Anyone Has Ever Done? And and yes, and did your friends think you were emotional when you were doing so? Yeah, my friends definitely did. And it was probably the fourth complete book that I wrote. There were many, many years when I was just writing books that people didn't take seriously, that I couldn't get anybody to read. And everybody thought I was delusional and they worried about me. We're just waiting for me to crack and get serious about life and give up my idea of being a writer. And really like getting into UEA changed that for me. Although I think that the idea that being a writer is foolish is so stubborn that even, even after that, when my second book was rejected, Again, people started to pressure me to go back to school and learn how to do something practical. Mm. How do you think that you managed to avoid this kind of narrative of delusion that people were projecting onto you and to not feel so down about it that you just kind of gave up trying and and did something else? Well, I think (laughs) I will always say this, like the thing that kept me being a writer was my complete incapacity for anything else. That if I had been able to do something else, I probably would have taken another 10, 15 years to write a book that was publishable. And I know- It's interesting that you think that you would still have done it though, just taken longer. Well, I realize that now. For a while, I thought I would have just given up. But now I teach a lot of adult education students and I've had a couple of students who are older women who 
continued writing, one of them after becoming a doctor and having a whole medical career. And she finally had her first book published in her 70s. So I realized like it never goes away. And as long as you have the time, you know, you just have less time, Mm -hmm. you will still continue to write and you can still write your stuff eventually. I don't think I ever would have given up. I can't let you go without talking briefly about how not to write a novel, which, um, as I mentioned earlier, is just such a brilliant book. It's a, it's a writing book that I think you wrote with your then boyfriend, now husband. It is spectacularly funny. It is actually really useful as well. But what it does is it sort of tells you, yes, what it gives you tips on what not to do. And it's filled with these <laughs> very funny little sort of excerpts of fake fiction with examples of the sorts of things that and actually it's embarrassing how many things I recognized in those little excerpts so thank you (laughs) it was a very shameful experience reading the book but undoubtedly very useful too but actually I spotted one thing in it where you said a good approach is to allow one dream per novel then in the final revision go back and get rid of that too which I thought was an interesting comment from somebody who went on to write an entire book about dreams (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when Heavens is is literally yeah. about dreams and contains 50% dream sequences. But those dream sequences are real. Like those things really happen. Just just saying. But um but yeah, yeah it's it's funny. Like I think if you if you ever say that there's a particular thing that you absolutely cannot tolerate in fiction, the next book that you write will end up featuring that thing very prominently. So <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Write Off. If you enjoyed it, I'd be delighted if you fancied leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. That really helps people find the podcast if they've not heard of it before. Or on Twitter, where you can find me at Francesca Steele. Don't forget that I list my guests' books at my online bookshop, which is uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Francesca Steele. Details in the show notes. If you buy books there, you are helping me fund this podcast. So thank you and see you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 